Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, hey, why, from an evolutionary perspective, is it so terrifying for many of us to contemplate challenging our own tribe? How comfortable would you be hopping on social media and questioning the deeply held convictions of your closest friends and colleagues? As tribalism becomes more deeply entrenched in modern culture, I suspect many of us find this prospect to be increasingly unappetizing. But are there ways to do it with some modicum of safety? Or even if you don't want to be public about it, are there ways to have more empathy with somebody whose views are different from your own? My guest today believes the future of civilization hinges on our ability to get better at this. You may know Robert Wright from his best-selling book with the audacious title, Why Buddhism is True. I loved that book. Robert also writes the Non-Zero newsletter and is host of the Wright Show podcast. I am a subscriber to and fan of both the newsletter and the podcast, by the way. Bob's new mission, which you can follow if you subscribe to the aforementioned newsletter, is something he calls the Apocalypse Aversion Project. As I mentioned, he believes deeply that in order for the species to overcome the massive challenges confronting us from tribalism to climate to nuclear proliferation, we need to take the next step in our evolution. And as you're going to hear, Bob has put his money where his mouth is in this regard. In this conversation, we talk about how mindfulness meditation can help us overcome our biases, how we are often manipulated by natural selection, the concepts of confirmation bias and attribution error, the pain and joy of pushing back against the conventional wisdom of your own tribe, the difference between cognitive empathy and emotional empathy, how we can be compassionate towards people and still think that as a practical matter, they should be in jail, and why Wright is a big believer in talking to people with whom he disagrees and making friendships across ideological lines. This is part two of a week-long series we're doing on bias. If you missed Monday's episode with the excellent journalist Jessica Nordell, go check that out. We'll get started with Robert Wright right after this. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only 
uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long lasting ammonia control. So your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs, and it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Robert Wright, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me, Dan pleasure. I'm a big fan and avid consumer of all things Bob Wright, from your newsletter to your podcast to your books. And I'm particularly interested to get you talking about what seems to be a big idea, a big thesis on your mind about humanity right now, which is something to the effect of we as a species are not going to survive unless we're able to transcend the lesser angels of our nature, in particular, our not-so-helpful, evolutionarily evolved biases. Yeah, I think that's a fair summary. I mean, I don't want to over-dramatize the situation, but I do think after billions of years of evolution and hundreds of thousands of years of our species being around, we've gotten to a point where it's essential that we get better at overcoming what are sometimes called cognitive biases, uh, which I think are kind of built into us by evolution. And I think the reason we need to get over them is because more and more the people of the planet collectively face problems that taken together can be called existential. I think including climate change, which people are well aware of, but also including various other challenges, arms control in various realms. I could go on, but yeah, you're right. I think we need to move to a higher plane. And and to to put it in Buddhist terms, I would say I, I think that we need to move at least some increment in the direction of enlightenment. I think of enlightenment as being on a spectrum kind of, Like, I know I'll never get to full-on enlightenment. I don't know how many people have, but I think all people can make at least baby steps toward it. And I think lots of people need to do that if we're going to pass these tests as a species. How would that look practically, this process of inching our way down the enlightenment spectrum or wising up, as I've heard you describe it? Does that mean everybody starts meditating stat? Or how do we get to the future that you think would be most hopeful and promising? Well, I certainly think meditation can be a valuable tool. I don't think people have to meditate to become 
more aware of some of the psychological impediments and biases I'm talking about and try to surmount them. But I do think mindfulness meditation is very well suited to the challenge. You know, and I think generally Buddhism deserves credit for having diagnosed the problem with being human pretty early on and been ahead of the game in a lot of ways, and even gotten to some insights that Western psychology has only gotten to recently. If I were talking to an audience of people bitterly opposed to Buddhism, I might talk about other paths to the goal, but I think your audience probably is pretty favorably disposed to meditation, and I have to say, I I think that can be a really helpful tool here. Now, I think what's great about mindfulness meditation is that it can focus your attention on some really kind of subtle but powerful levers for kind of attacking the problem. Let me just give you one example. Okay, so one famous cognitive bias is confirmation bias. We all are naturally inclined to notice and embrace evidence consistent with our pre-existing views and not notice or reject or critically interrogate evidence that seems incompatible with them. And that can get us into all kinds of troubles. Like if we have this idea that some group of people is bad or uh, they are intrinsically and forever our enemies, then we're going to look for evidence that sustains that. And so this can be a really big problem. And I think where meditation can help here is that the, the phrase cognitive bias is kind of a misnomer. The word cognitive sounds so kind of detached from emotion and feeling, but I think what really drives these biases is feeling. So in the case of confirmation bias, like imagine you're on social media, you're on Twitter or something, and somebody tweets something, you know, it's somebody kind of in your ideological tribe, and they tweet something that confirms your worldview, and you see it, well, if you pay attention, you'll notice that you actually, you feel a favorable disposition toward it. You actually have an affection for that evidence, right? And that's why you uncritically embrace it and may retweet it. And on the other hand, if you see evidence that seems at odds with your worldview, if you pay enough attention, and meditation helps you pay attention to things like this, you'll notice that there's a kind of hostility toward the evidence itself. It's kind of an aversion to it. You want to push it away. And because you're hostile toward it, you want to critically interrogate it. And you want to say, well, wait a second, where did they get this? I want to see the study that claimed to find this. You don't naturally do that with the evidence that seems to support your world. You just retweet it, right? Because you like it. And I think the first step toward being more careful about what we do and don't retweet and what we do and don't accept is to recognize the feeling that accompany the inclination to retweet or not, to embrace or not. And I think if you go about your social media business that way, you'll be a better citizen. And I think mindfulness meditation, I'm sure you'll agree, can help you be attentive to exactly that kind of thing. I do agree. It's fashionable these days to beat up on social media. I can't say that I entirely disagree with that impulse. Where do you stand on whether social media is helpful or hurtful in terms of the survival of the species? Well, in a way, it's a moot point. I think we're stuck with it. I mean, (laughs) you know, humans are so strongly drawn toward it. It brings so many things we like that I think it's kind of 
not going to go away. I mean, people have always used the available information technology to associate with people they have things in common with, to share information that's important to them and so on. And so I think it's going to be around. Social media companies, I think there's things they could do to make it more productive. But I think in the meanwhile, it's up to us to use it in ways that are more constructive. And I think happily, the goal of being a good citizen on social media largely coincides with the goal of being a, you know, a happy person who's not going crazy. The kind of equanimity you try to cultivate with mindfulness meditation, I think, helps in both of those regards. So what does that look like? I mean, I get that it might look like, in part, noticing the voracious urge to retweet any piece of news that is bad for the opposite tribe and then not giving into it. Might it also look like gently questioning things that your fellow tribes, men and women and people are saying? I know you've experimented with that a little bit. I have, off and on. I think that's the great challenge right now, or a great challenge, is bucking your tribe. When you see something that your ideological kin are embracing uncritically, or you see them taking a needlessly uncharitable attitude toward people in, you know, in the other ideological tribe, or if you see them doing something that's very common on social media, which is to act as if the most extreme person on the other side is typical, right? Like, oh, look at this. Look at how this, look at how these conservatives are reacting to this, when actually it's only about seven people in a given week who are freaking out in a supermarket over a mask mandate or something. You know, not that many people are actually doing that. It's not easy to step out and say, wait a second, folks, we shouldn't overgeneralize and so on. And that takes what I guess you could call courage. And I think where mindfulness can come in there is, you know, the impediment to courage is fear, right? It's like fear of what people whose esteem you want will think of you, right? People in your ideological group. There's a kind of fear you have to overcome to step out and say something that may be unpopular. And fear, like any problematic emotion, is something that can be addressed through mindfulness, right? By observing it, you can loosen its grip on you. I also think there are little tricks. Like sometimes if I tweet something that I fear is going to get me blowback, I just like tweet it, turn off my computer, <laughs> go do something, right? Because it can be really, uh, you know, a roller coaster ride to sit there and see what people are thinking of it in real time. There can be virtue in, in engaging the conversation, engaging the blowback. But I think there's also virtue in just coming back to it an hour later and replying to the people who you think should be replied to. How has it gone for you when you've pushed back against conventional wisdom in your tribe? Do you have any specific examples that might be worth dissecting? Maybe this is a little bit of a cop-out. But I have a tendency to try to point out to people things that are unwise tactically. A couple of examples. So one was, I remember during the Black Lives Matter protests, there was a pretty famous video of some protesters going by a restaurant. These people were dining outside and the protesters like demanded that they hold their hands up in solidarity. Now, first of all, I find that completely abhorrent. Just the idea of subjecting people to any kind of heavy-handed pressure. I mean, you know, you got these 
sometimes elderly people like dining and all these young, vigorous people come by in a crowd and demand a show of allegiance. I find that abhorrent, but I also find it counterproductive because that is exactly the kind of meme that is going to, as it plays out in conservative circles, convince them that actually we are the fascists, right? And my inclination is to point that out to people rather than to say, I personally find this abhorrent. And maybe that's a little bit of a cop-out, but maybe you get more traction with that. The other example is defund the police. And here I had an advantage, which is because my daughter had just been holding a defund the police sign in a protest. (laughs) She had explained to me that it doesn't mean quite exactly what you might think it means. It means, you know, change the nature of policing. But anyway, I'm not in favor of taking away all the money from police departments, but also I think that's just a terrible message. It just strategically, it doesn't even matter what they mean by it. The phrase itself is just a surefire political loser. That's what I said. And to get back to your question of what has the experience been like of trying to do things like this, which I don't do nearly often enough, you often find out that there's more support for you than you would have expected. And some of it may come from people in the other in the other tribe, so to speak, fine. But there are more people than you might imagine who are aware of the dangers of being too reactive to things. And yet, as everybody knows, it can be incredibly painful to be on the receiving end of vitriolic disapprobation from people whose opinions you care about. And I imagine maybe that's happened a little bit to you. And how did you handle it, if so? It has happened a little. I'm pretty good at ignoring it. I mean, and maybe that's where confirmation bias is your friend. It's it's like, you know, when the people who tweet really unfriendly things in reply, I'm kind of good at dismissing them. They must be confused. They disagree with me, right? I don't know. If somebody becomes a real problem, I just, I mute them. The other place this has been an issue is on my podcast, I try to host a great diversity of views, including people on both the right and the left who are considered extremists by people on the other side. And there are times when people, basically they're trying to deplatform the people I'm having on. And that can be hard because the accusations can be particularly nasty because when they're trying to deplatform somebody, they tend to be. But I mean, there's some people I wouldn't have on my podcast, but I think it's important to try to understand a very broad array of perspectives. And I think this is one of the most important strengths that needs to be cultivated is cognitive empathy. That's one of my hobby horses, cognitive empathy being a little different from emotional empathy. You know, emotional empathy being the kind of classic kind of empathy, just kind of feeling their pain, so to speak. But cognitive empathy is just understanding the perspective, not necessarily agreeing with it, not necessarily having any sympathy for the person who holds it, but just trying to understand it. And I think something I I really encourage people to work on is at least try to understand why they're doing what they're doing. There's a reason, and and you're better off understanding it than not. What do you recommend in terms of modalities for cognitive empathy? I hate to keep getting back to meditation, but as long as we do have a meditation-friendly crowd here, I have found that mindfulness meditation makes it easier to understand perspectives of people you might feel hostile toward, whether for ideological or other reasons, 
And the reason is that the hostility itself can kind of abate or at least become less of a distorting influence on your cognition. And the other thing I found is that, you know, sometimes cognitive empathy can lead to the other kind of empathy. It can lead to emotional empathy. And it works the other way around in a very natural way. I mean, you may notice that if there's somebody you're already inclined to feel empathetic toward in the classic sense, you know, sharing their pain, you hope for the best for them, it's usually not that hard to understand their perspective. The problematic cases are the people you don't feel that way toward. So it can work both ways. Emotional empathy can enhance cognitive empathy. I think cognitive empathy can enhance emotional empathy, but I still want to stress that understanding the perspective of someone, even someone you think has done abhorrent things, needn't mean absolving them of responsibility for what they've done, even if it leads to compassion. We can be compassionate toward people and still think that as a practical matter, they need to go to prison. Another way that one potentially could develop cognitive empathy, perhaps, I'd be interested to see what you think about this, is varying your media diet, whether it's on social media or otherwise. Do you think that's a viable route? Yeah, I encourage that. I mean, I honestly, I find Fox News more interesting (laughs) than, than CNN or MSNBC, partly because there's actual news there. And the news is, oh, this is how events are being processed on that side. I already know how they're being processed on my side. You know, that's not news and it's not very interesting. And to be honest, I sometimes find it kind of disconcerting to see how the media on, quote, my team are just spending so much time reinforcing our biases. I find it more interesting to listen to an outlet that informs me about how things are being processed by people who aren't like me. And that's also, again, I think that's valuable. I think it's always good for you to understand what's going through the mind on the other side of the table, whether it's an enemy or a friend, or as is usually the case, some combination of the two. There's a tweet I sometimes quote from Ian Bremmer from the Eurasia Group. Ian's a writer on international affairs. I'm sure you're familiar with him. It used to be his pinned tweet, but it said something to the effect of, if you're using this website to only follow people you agree with, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. And I think Ian Bremmer is very much worth following. He is good at understanding the perspectives of the various players in the world. Speaking of understanding other people's perspectives, I just want to make clear to this audience who may not follow you as closely as they should, you really do put your money where your mouth is. Every Friday, you do a podcast episode with a gentleman by the name of Mickey Kaus, who's a longtime writer on politics and has, in his later years, as I understand it, become, if not a Trumpist, at least Trump sympathetic. And every Friday, you guys hash out the week's news from different perspectives. And it rarely, and I'm an avid listener, it rarely devolves into shouting or name-calling or anything of that sort. Yeah, well, the irony is when there is shouting, it's me doing it, and I'm supposedly (laughs) the meditator. But as one commenter said recently, this is why Bob needs to meditate and Mickey doesn't, because, you know, Bob's inclined to lose it. But yeah, Mickey, I've known him forever. We were at the New Republic together more decades ago than either of us cares to remember. And yeah, he voted for Trump twice. I'm happy to say that I think January 6th finally gave him some second thoughts, but we have very different perspectives 
And, you know, the friendship helps, the fact that we've known each other for so long. But I'm a big believer in talking to people that you disagree with. And one thing I've noticed is that actually talking to them can be a very helpful thing in the sense that, and this is something I discovered early on, if you would bring together two bloggers who had written nasty things about each other and put them in a face-to-face conversation, they would have a much harder time saying nasty things about each other. So there's a, a civilizing effect to just often, not always, but often to just face-to-face conversation. Three little thoughts came to mind as you were talking there. One is the old trope about how it's hard to hate up close. I think that's probably true. The second thing is uh, there's this video. There's a comedian I love named Tony Baker. He's, he's very active on Instagram. I'm not even on Instagram. Uh, I don't have the app, but I will sometimes go through the website just to look at Tony's page. And he does these incredible like seven second masterpieces where he'll take video clips of animals interacting and he'll do voiceovers where he plays each character. It's very, very funny. And one of the clips is these two dogs who each on the opposite side of a fence who are growling and snarling at each other. And as soon as they open the fence, they stop. And as soon as they close it again, they start growling and snapping at each other. <laughs> that, that's I, I have two of those dogs. Actually. I mean, I mean, in terms of the way they behave toward other dogs, I, I, I get that. Yeah. The third thing that came to mind as I was listening to you there was you talked about the fact that you and Mickey have a friendship. And I might be mangling his work, but the psychologist and writer Jonathan Haidt from NYU, who has never been on the show, but Jonathan, you are cordially invited. I'm a fan of your work, has written about our moral life and moral intuitions being like an elephant and a rider. The elephant is our subconscious and the the rider is our conscious. And we think the rider is in charge, but actually the elephant's running the show. And elephants are very hard to change. But one of the mechanisms by which we can change our elephants, our subconscious assumptions and intuitions and urges, is friendship. One of the ways we can do it is by having friends. So I share those reflections. You can ignore them or pick up on them if you want. Yeah, it's true. You know, to use friendship to its maximum potential, you have to kind of not just trust your friendship instincts, so to speak, you know, because what you see happening on social media is in a way what's most natural and easy. You're friends with the people you agree with and so on. But absolutely, you know, making friendships across enemy lines can be a super valuable thing. I think it's almost a cliche at this point to say the country needs more of it. Much more of my conversation with Robert Wright coming up after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation. 
and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. We were talking about forms of bias early on in the conversation. We've talked about confirmation bias. Another form of bias is attribution error. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I think attribution error is the most underrated cognitive bias, and it's relatively unknown. Well, here's the way it was originally thought to work. The idea was that when we are explaining the behavior of other people, we explain it too much in terms of their basic nature, their character, their disposition, and not enough in terms of circumstance or situation. So in other words, you know, if you see somebody in a checkout line being rude to the clerk, you think, oh, well, that guy's a jerk. And that's the natural reaction. And you don't think, well, maybe he had a horrible day. Maybe he found out that somebody he loves has a horrible disease. We just don't know. And the original idea was that we just tend to attribute more than is in order to disposition as opposed to situation. It turned out to be more complicated. And the deal is, with people who are friends and allies, if they do something good, we attribute it to disposition. They're good people. They're our friends. If they do something bad, we explain it away in terms of situation. You know, they had had a bad day, but they're not bad people. Whereas if it's somebody we classify as an enemy, it's the opposite. They do something bad and we go, yep, that's the way they are. That's their character. Once you've got them in the bad box, it's very hard for them to get out. Buddhism is kind of anti-essentialist. The doctrine of emptiness, which is uh, you hear more about in Mahayana circles than in Theravada circles, is the idea that we tend to attribute essence to things. Trees have essence of tree, and cars have essence of car, and my car has a special essence. And the idea of emptiness is that essence is a projection. There is no such thing as actual essence. Things are actually empty of essence. My view is that, A, essence tends to have a kind of affective coloration that is more than we realize. There's a way that looking at my car makes me feel. There's a way that looking at a tree makes me feel. And that's part of the essence we attribute to something. But to get back to, to friends and enemies, there's definitely a feeling of essence of enemy. I had an interesting experience I was teaching a freshman seminar at Princeton on Buddhism years ago, and before the class started, there was a woman whom the guest speaker in the class had brought along, and she was actually notorious in progressive circles. And one of the students was talking to her before the class who didn't know who she was, and then it became clear who the woman was. She was this notorious right-wing woman. And I later asked the student, I mean, I was discussing with the class, I said, what was the moment like when you found out who she was? And she said, yeah, like one moment, she was just this nice old woman. And then it was transformation. I found out who she was and, and suddenly it was this bad person. She had essence of badness. And I do think more than we realize, we attribute different essences to people that reflect our experience with them. And that can be useful as a practical matter. To navigate the social landscape, we have to kind of have a feel for who our friends are, and that's fine. 
But I do think that if you ask, what is it that drives this particular attribution error? What is it that steers our thinking about why this person did this thing, whether it was disposition or circumstance? I think it's driven by this sense of essence, you know, the feeling, the essence gives us its affective coloration. And this is just another example of how I think, you know, Buddhism has been ahead of the game all along in appreciating how subtly our feelings shape our cognition and our perceptions. And sometimes, distort them. It strikes me that these biases, unchecked, unaddressed, unexamined, really make us vulnerable to manipulation. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of doing the manipulating ourselves in a sense. I mean, my first thought was, yeah, we're being manipulated in a sense by natural selection, right? The designer of human nature. But what you're thinking of is is also true, which is that, for example, somebody who wants to increase their follower count on Twitter can find somebody in the other tribe doing something crazy, say something about it that enrages people in my tribe, and I kind of fall for the bait because that is my first feeling, right? Yeah, they're horrible. And I retweet it. And I increase the follower count of this person who is ultimately being kind of manipulative. You know, this is... One of the big problems of our time is that the way you increase your stature within your tribe, I mean, this is an eternal truth probably, but the way it's playing out on social media is deeply problematic. The way you increase your follower count within your own tribe is to demonize the other tribe. That's a really unhealthy incentive structure. And you're right that if I don't have some distance from the cognitive biases that are shaping my behavior and getting me to retweet or not retweet, then I I can be manipulated easily. This is what, what Buddhism is about, right? Awareness is liberation. Awareness can be liberation. As they say in Buddhist circles, simple but not easy, right? It's a simple principle, but maintaining the awareness is challenging. Yes, and another little cliche that I think is useful here is there's a reason why we call it a practice. Absolutely. It's, for me, an ongoing challenge. Meditation is an ongoing challenge. It doesn't come naturally to me, but, you know, life is hard. <laughs> we, can, we could agree on that, and I, I think the Buddha would agree as well. You said something that I didn't want to let slide there, which is that we're being manipulated by natural selection. Can you say more about that? Well, you know, what I mean is there are kinds of two problems that human nature poses us with. The first is that natural selection didn't design us to be happy. It designed us to do things that got genes spread, right? So classic example is the classic Buddhist problem of tanha or craving, the unsatisfactoriness of life, the fact that, you know, you gratify this craving, but almost immediately you want more It doesn't last. You know, this is designed into us by natural selection because it's an obviously good way to keep an animal pursuing various goals that can get genes into the next generation. So there's the fact that we weren't designed to be happy. And then there's a second fact that we're not living in the environment we were even designed for. So there are some forms of modern unhappiness that are a product of that. 
you know, severe anxiety disorder. You don't find a lot of hunter-gatherers with severe anxiety disorder. You do find anxiety. That's natural. That's a tool that natural selection built into us to get us to worry about things. But it's only in a modern environment that it can very easily get out of control in this completely dysfunctional way. I think that's one way to look at what meditation is about, is to A, deal with unfortunate byproducts of the fact that we're not living in the environment we were designed for, and B, to deal with the fact that our designer didn't have our true interests at heart to begin with. It just wanted us to spread genes. What is the Apocalypse Aversion Project? In crass commercial terms, it's kind of, I was going to say, it's kind of the paywalled part of my newsletter, the non-zero newsletter. I mean, you know, there's there are paid subscribers and unpaid subscribers. I like to think the project is visible to everyone who, who reads the newsletter, and I think it is. The idea is that, again, I think we face a lot of problems, some of them environmental problems, climate change, you know, various forms of pollution, some of them old-fashioned arms control problems, nuclear weapons, some of them newer problems, bioweapons, and some of them emergent problems, weapons in space, artificial intelligence. Do we want to have an arms race in artificial intelligence among nations, or do we want to have an arms race in human genetic engineering, right? You don't want to have to think about these issues in this environment of kind of nationalistic fear, right? There are just a lot of areas where you'd like to develop rules of the road with other nations. And I think if we don't get those under control, and we could be in deep trouble. I mean apocalypse in a slightly fanciful way. But at the same time, I do think the problems can be called collectively existential. And when I say aversion, I mean both I'm averse to this outcome, but also how do you avert it? And I think part of the answer is a lot of policies at the international level, but Part of the answer is these psychological obstacles we have to overcome if we're going to get to the point of developing wise policies at the international level and at the national level. You know, we're going to have to get over the things that are that, that are dividing us. That's all. So in that realm is that that's when we get to meditation. One of the beefs that some people have with meditation, and I'd love to get you to respond to this, is that contrary to, it's not going to help us avert any apocalypse. Actually, what it's going to do is make us a bunch of complacent morons, apathetic, blissed out, useless folks. Well, that doesn't sound that bad. Actually. Yeah, that actually in and of yeah. itself might sounds, avert. Sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> sounds fun. I mean, well, first of all, honestly, in some cases, that would be a more productive way of being than getting super agitated and reinforcing tribal biases on social media. But that's not my main answer to that. My main answer is, let me know when you get to that point. I mean, I, mean, I, I think it's true that if you ask what would true enlightenment be like in the strictest sense, in the strictest old-fashioned sense of enlightenment, and people have different ideas about what enlightenment means, but yeah, it might involve almost an indifference to external conditions that was demotivating because you managed to maintain equanimity and bliss regardless of what was happening. For me, at least, the bigger challenge is, and I think for lots of people I know, pursuing the passions we have, the ideological passions we have in a more constructive way a way that's better for the world, better for other human beings, and very often better for our own ideological tribe. 
I mean, my job, I guess, is to interview a lot of people who are highly attained meditators. People have been doing this for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And I guess two common denominators I've seen among these dedicated meditators. One is a sense of humor. <laughs> they don't take themselves too seriously. And the other is the absolute opposite of apathy. Not an irrational, enraged engagement, but a deep sense of caring about what's going on in the world, a sense of connectivity that seems to me, as, as somebody who's not in their minds and doesn't have a mind like that, to be very supple and effective. Yeah, I think meditation, first of all, tends to make you compassionate toward more people than you might have been compassionate toward before because it makes you less indifferent to the welfare of people who might have been outside your circle as you conventionally reckoned it. You know, and if you're feeling compassionate to people, that, you know, that's motivating. It would be a bad world if the people with the best intentions were indifferent and the people with the worst intentions were highly motivated. But right now, what I see is a lot of people with good intentions who would be more effective if they ratcheted the reactiveness down a little. Much more of my conversation with Robert Wright coming up after this. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's what happens when you give Grammarly to your entire team. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I want to give you a chance to make, and I think this is the right point to do it, I want to give you a chance to make a point I've heard you make elsewhere here, which is something along the lines of the notion of enlightened self-interest, that this work that you're calling on us to do to transcend these ancient biases is not only good for the world, but it will make us happier. Yeah, I think, first of all, the global problems I've talked about are what are called non-zero-sum problems. That is to say it's possible to have a win-win outcome. And obviously, if we get there and solve these problems, it's good for us in that sense. And in that sense, I guess the good news is that all that's required for the sheer salvation of the planet, I think, is enlightened self-interest. Now, enlightened self-interest is not enough to solve all problems, all problems of justice, for example. 
But I think it's good that at least enlightened self-interest could, in theory, get us a chance of keeping the planet together and get out of the business of getting a lot of people killed and polluting the planet and so on. But in any event, it's the second thing we alluded to earlier, which is that the practice of becoming more aware and more effective in your actions and wiser in your actions can make you a happier person. And, and it gets back to what is kind of amazing about what I think of as in some ways a fundamental claim of Buddhism, which is that, you know, the reason we suffer and the reason we make other people suffer is that we don't see the world clearly. That's one of these amazing, if true things, right? What it suggests is that this one key, seeing the world more clearly, can help you and can help other people. Simple but not easy, right? To say, see the world more clearly, but at least if this claim is true, and I think it is, at least that tells you where to focus your energies. Yes, everything you just said, and just to build on it a little bit, there's something about making friends with people with whom you disagree that is, I think, when done well, enjoyable, maybe even perversely enjoyable, but I think actually kind of enjoyable in a wholesome way, and uprooting and seeing the ridiculousness of your own biases, while painful on one level, is in my experience, quite enjoyable. And maybe it's just what you said, that it somehow feels good to see things clearly, even if that involves admitting you've been wrong for a long time. Well, yeah. For one thing, according to kind of Buddhist doctrine, the things that are distorting your vision are ultimately unpleasant things, right? I think you're also right that it feels good to know you've triumphed over distortion. And as you said, it feels good to get to know an enemy and realizing that, you know, at least not all of the enmity was really in order. It, it, you know, you, you had exaggerated how bad they are at a minimum. It, it's a little like how good it feels if you're in a foreign country and you know a little of the language and you actually succeed in communicating with somebody. That's just a gratifying feeling. You know, overcoming all these kinds of barriers actually feel good. And it's not easy because you do, there are valid moral judgments, right? There are things people do that it is right to disapprove of. On the other hand, we are all doing something that it's right to disapprove of. <laughs> and you're probably going to have more influence over people who are doing things that's right to disapprove of if you're in communication with them than if you're shouting at them. I just have one last question about apocalypse aversion, which is what is, as we speak right now, your level of optimism about whether the apocalypse, whether we use that term with seriousness or some level of fancy, as you alluded to before, do you think it can be averted? Well, first of all, I should say I'm just not by nature an optimist. So you should really discount any pessimism you hear from me. I think total annihilation of all living things on the planet is very unlikely. Total annihilation of the human species is unlikely. And I think if there were something, anything approaching that, we would probably emerge wiser. You know, the two world wars were followed by laudable efforts. I mean, World War I was followed by the League of Nations. You know, you have this traumatic global experience. They do the League of Nations. It turns out to be very flawed. It doesn't work. World War II happens. They try the United Nations. Still flawed, but structurally a little better. Whatever you think of these institutions, it's evidence that people learn from trauma, right? That, that the species does reflect on bad things and try to do better. So I guess maybe it's not that I'm 
pessimistic in the longest run. I just hope it doesn't take some kind of epic trauma to get us to overcome nationalism and various other kinds of tribalism. That's my hope. And, you know, look, there are a lot of encouraging things. The sheer awareness of cognitive biases is encouraging. The spread of the word that you're doing so much of about mindfulness meditation is very encouraging. There's a whole lot of work to do, but we do learn as a species. And I will say, look, when you look at the process that created us, natural selection, the only rule is whatever life form gets the most gene spread is the life form that wins. It's kind of amazing that we're where we are. You wouldn't have even predicted that we do have built in these feelings of altruism, which are built in, even if they're selectively activated and sometimes too selectively activated. But, you know, compassion, all these things are natural. And, you know, these are assets we can work with. And in some respects, our, our history of working with them is itself impressive. I'm almost talking myself into being optimistic. <laughs> we should probably stop here before it gets out of control. Maybe you've been doing too much meditating. So tell me about it. Are you doing any meditating these days? Do you feel pressure to keep meditating because you wrote this whole best-selling book about Buddhism? Well, actually, I think that's a godsend. You know, most people don't have a compelling reason to get on the cushion every day. As you may know, you know, once you're talking the talk, you got to walk the walk. So, yeah, I'm meditating. I mean, this is, of course, the least of the tragedies of the pandemic, but it has been problematic for me in the sense that I realized that I'd be, I had become pretty dependent on going to a retreat, week-long, 10 days, every year or two to recharge my practice. And now that by and large, live retreats, you know, in-person retreats haven't been happening, I haven't done that. And so that, that has been challenging. And I would say my practice has not been as obviously effective. I guess my coping mechanisms have been, first of all, lower my expectations. When you come off a retreat, your skills are, they're more finely honed than usual. And so you're like, okay, go through the routine, focus on the breath attain this calm state. And that, for me, that gets harder as, as the retreat recedes into the past. So I have to, I think, become a little less dogmatic about particular paths I've used and settle for a kind of a freeform awareness. The other thing is I've started setting the alarm on my watch for an evening session where, again, low expectations doesn't have to last long, but I sometimes find I have kind of more to work with, so to speak, in the evening than in the morning. You know, by that time, you're, you may be agitated, you may be this, you may be that. It's almost easier to be aware of something because the things going on in your, your head are more salient. They have more of an edge to them. Now, I have to say, it's funny. I know you did this podcast with Alexis Santos. Is that his name? Yes. Yes, it is. And it's funny, this morning, I taped an episode of my podcast with Josh Summers, a friend of mine who's also a meditation teacher and a yoga teacher. He was pushing what I think is exactly that same thing on me. He's evangelizing. I think he invoked the same Burmese meditation teacher. And so I'm gonna have to look into this. I had initially misunderstood what Josh was saying to me, I think, and taking it to mean like, well, whatever happens on the cushion is success. Just get up and say, you know, you must have been aware of something. It was it's fine. Don't worry. But after talking to him more and listening to your podcast, I realize it's it's actually what he's advocating is actually in a way, well, it's more challenging than that. It's not trivially easy. This idea of going through the day and intermittently asking yourself if you're aware, what your attitude of awareness is, and so on. So I'm going to experiment with that, and we'll see. 
but I am eager to be able to go to another retreat at some point in life. Just to fill in the blanks for folks who might not have heard that episode on this show with Alexis Santos, who's a great meditation teacher, and his teacher, the Burmese gentleman you referenced, is named Sayada U Tejaniya. And the most famous Burmese masters are kind of known for, maybe this is too strong a word, but a sort of militancy or you know, athleticism in their practice. It's a, it's a very kind of strict and a little bit strivey, the more famous versions of Burmese practice. Sayada Utijaniya is he's counter-programming against that with a much more relaxed style that instead of, you know, being all over your breath like a mad dog or noting everything that comes up in your mind obsessively, he's just, you know, kind of has you relax and ask yourself a series of questions in your meditation practice on and off the cushion. Where he's strict is he's really strict about staying aware at all times. But the questions that you referenced are, one is, are you aware? Or what is being known right now is the way I usually do it. The second is, what's the attitude in my mind right now? Am I trying to make something happen? Am I averse to something that is happening? And the third is not a question. It's more of a statement that you may notice thought patterns, emotions come up, and you can just say, this is nature. Instead of attaching to it as yours or, you know, essentially you, just to notice, yeah, yeah, like any meteorological phenomenon is arising out of a set of conditions and it doesn't have to be solidified in that way. And I found this to be great on retreat because I didn't realize how badly I disliked it until I did something different. I don't like the the strict regimented form of practice that you mostly get on retreat. And I find in my daily practice, it's much more enjoyable. So your practice is going well, I take it? Yeah, I mean, I went through a bit of an arc. You know, I've been practicing for not that long, frankly, 12, 13 years. And I started out with five to 10 minutes a day for about a year. And then I went on a retreat. And that was incredibly hard, but also really it gave me a lot of faith that there's a lot to this practice. I came home from that and started doing a half hour a day for a long time. And then I wrote a book about meditation and my hair was on fire about it. And it still is on fire, of course. But I tried to do two hours every day, which was just insane. And I did that. I remember yes, that phase. Yeah, that's I remember that phase of your life. Particularly obnoxious uh, phase of my life and inconsiderate, <laughs> frankly, to, to, to in particular my wife. And then I cut down to an hour. And then from there, I just started to realize, you know what? I have enough momentum and I enjoy the practice enough. I'm going to sit every day. I don't need to count the minutes. I'm going to sit whenever I got the opportunity, maybe one big sit, maybe a series of small sits, maybe both. And that attitude plus the approach that Alexis brought to the table for me has made my practice way more enjoyable. It doesn't mean I don't struggle with distraction or uncomfortable physical sensations or emotions, but the struggle is a little less freighted. Yeah, that's good. You know, there are all different kinds of meditation. I mean, I think there's always value in going to a treat and kind of going deep. But at the same time, you're not going to be able to sustain that depth as a practical matter in real life. And you need a way of sticking with the basic practice, the basic concept in everyday life. I mean, that's where it really pays its dividends. I think you sometimes have to rethink in the way it sounds like you've rethought. And I'm, I'm in evolution in that regard. Everything's changing all the time. That's one of the fundamental observations of Buddhism. And that's true for your meditation practice. And something might work for you for a while. 
And then it's always worth, not obsessively, but once in a while, it's worth reassessing and trying something new. Another thing that I added into my practice in a much more systematic way about three years ago was a lot of loving kindness practice, you know, where you sit and repeat these phrases. I've done two 10-day retreats of just that, and I do a lot of it in my daily practice. And that for me, for some people, it's a very challenging practice. For me, thus far, it has been a very enjoyable practice. It produces a lot of the uh, concentration, which can feel good physically. And so it actually makes me look forward to practice in a way that's much more motivating to get me onto the cushion. And so that's been very helpful, too. Well, I'm one of the people that has not come easily to, but I guess if you can do loving-kindness meditation, maybe that means I can do it. I don't know. Maybe I should work on that. I mean, I do find that just plain old garden variety mindfulness meditation does make me more compassionate toward more people. It does cultivate, in that sense, loving-kindness. I've always had trouble, maybe with the beginning part, like where you're supposed to feel love toward yourself— (laughs) <laughs> that's right. I mean, that's hard. Well, uh, isn't that the way it starts y- yes. off? Yes. At, at the beginning? Of it does. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just got excited. The shift in, in the way I had it taught to me uh, by a great teacher, her name is Spring Washam. Uh, I did a, a nine day actually re- retreat with her, just kind of one on one. It was a great privilege. And instead of starting with sending good vibes to yourself, she starts with an easy person. And so she'll have you do days of just one. I did two easy people, my son and and our cat. And it was extremely easy to send good vibes to these two beings and very enjoyable. And there was a lot of concentration that got built up and a lot of like physical sensations that go along with that, which can be a little narcotic, frankly. And as soon as you get the the engine revved in that way, Spring's technique is to shove yourself in. (laughs) And then it will get dry because we're hard. And then you go back to the easy person. And that was very, very helpful for me. I think I would need something like that. I mean, right before you said your cat, I was thinking, well, I would start with my dogs. You know, dogs, are they're, they're so easy to love. So maybe that's where I need to start. So maybe I'm salvageable on the uh, loving kindness front. I believe you're salvageable on all fronts. And I would just close by saying that in terms of averting the apocalypse, mindfulness meditation, I'm foursquare in your camp that that would be very helpful. I would just say that this kind of practice too can turbocharge the whole system because you're starting to bring in, well, first of all, having a kinder relationship to yourself yeah, changes changes the game in some pretty significant ways. And then that can allow you to bring in people who you've regarded as an enemy and without condoning their behavior, to start to see it, to start to see them in a more sympathetic light. Yeah, I I used to be disdainful of the idea of self-compassion, I guess, but I've more and more come to see the wisdom of it, yeah. I don't think self-compassion, I think there's sometimes people say you need to love yourself before you can love other people. I think that's, you can prove that not to be the case. We all know people who are very hard on themselves and are extremely kind and effective in the world. I do think it makes it much easier to be kind to other people if you are kinder to yourself. And the science around self-compassion, you know, seems to be, from what I can tell, very convincing. And having road tested a lot of these techniques, both on the cushion and in my sort of free-range life, I am a deep believer. Yeah. More and more, I am too. 
So I'm always a step behind you. <laughs> that, is, that is also demonstrably false. But before we go, can you please plug all of your offerings, your books, your podcast slash uh, video blog, your uh, newsletter? I'm glad to do that. The newsletter is called The Non-Zero Newsletter. Uh, it's it's Substack. It, the title comes from a book I wrote called Non-Zero, which I also wouldn't discourage you from Checking out the Buddhism book is somewhat obnoxiously titled Why Buddhism is True. I mean, some people find it obnoxious, but it's not dogmatic in the way it sounds, I like to think. So the podcast is called The Right Show. I really appreciate the chance, Dan, to uh, engage in crass self-promotion, <laughs> e even though the self doesn't exist. Exactly. Exactly. Bob, thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to Bob. And thanks, of course, to everybody who makes this show. Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant. And we get our audio engineering from the good folks over at Ultraviolet Audio. See you all on Friday for a very special bonus. We're going to be dropping an entire episode of our newest 10% Happier show. It's called Childproof. It's incredibly good. The host, Yasmin Khan, is amazing. So we'll see you all on Friday for that. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.